Hello, everybody, and welcome back for another stellar episode of the IBS Freedom Podcast. What, what? Um, this episode, I'm just going to predict something. I feel like my predictions are always wrong, but I'm going to predict that this one will get fewer views than we normally get, only because it doesn't sound as sexy and it doesn't sound as like, ooh, this is going to have like the magic bullet that's going to make you feel better today. Mm. But I think this is a really important episode, not only for any practitioners who might be listening, but also for like the average bear who's listening to these episodes. So we're going to get all sorts of nerdy and sciencey with talking about how how can you as an individual use research and what are the things you need to think about when reading research or praising research? Because honestly, there's a lot of BS out there and a lot of it's on PubMed. There's a lot of very bad quality science, but it is science nonetheless. And if you're not checking out the article a little bit or checking sources, you could easily be duped just because something is on PubMed and it looks super legit. So I felt like this was an important topic. Uh, that being said, do you want to do you want to lead us off perhaps? My sweet? Yeah, no, it's, it's such an interesting topic because I don't know, even like coming out of the COVID era, like the science is the science, like yeah, everything is like the science, you know, and it's, it's science is heavily debated and every study is going to have like flaws and like pros. So, you know, there has to be some degree of critical thinking when you're reviewing scientific literature. And um, I, I find sometimes and you still have to have some critical ear here because everybody has bias, but I love, I love people that can synthesize research really good and, and figure out, you know, this is the pros of this particular study. This is the limitations that they don't even point out within the discussion section of the study. Um, so Again, sometimes having a few people that you know that synthesize research pretty well is always helpful. And I feel like you're mm -hmm. one of those people. So, oh, ooh. oh unexpected comp flow here. Yeah. Thank you. But, you know, like sometimes it's interesting to listen to those people that are just ripping through research article after research article and synthesizing a bunch of information. I feel like Chris Masterjohn's kind of like that too, oh, yeah. where he's insane. Our the girl Lucy Mailing, like she, yeah, right. she's great with this too. Right. So and it's nice to have people that you can semi like pretty much trust that their information is going to be as unbiased and give a lot of different angles on something and, and show limitations because again, nothing is perfect. And I think the other nuancey thing I will just add too is that, you know, every, every study too could show this thing is beneficial for IBS and it might be that that's true. A majority of people do really well on it, but you might not too. So as you as an individual might right. not fit that exact pattern. Yeah, that's exactly. a really good point. So I think just before we dive in too, you could do all the research in the world and try to construct this perfect plan for your IBS based on the research that you did. And on paper, that looks really good, but it still might not be the best thing for you or the thing that you're going to respond best to. So research is a really good starting point, and it could give you different things to consider. 
And probably if you're doing a number of things, you're going to find something that works based on research. But, you know, there might be a few things that typically work well for people with IBS that don't work well for you. And that's okay. It's not something necessarily to, to throw in the towel over. Um, it's okay to get frustrated a little bit, but just keep trying d different things. Um, you might be surprised what yeah. works. And there might be something totally not in the research that's going to help you. Like my client that plays the guitar every day, and that's the thing that she finds helps the most with managing her symptoms. And it's like, there's no study showing that playing guitar helps with IBS. So I'm so glad you started with that because actually I was going to say, I want to zoom way out. That was going to be my first big takeaway is that mm. the, the beautiful thing about science is that it's never done. Right. Humans will have interesting questions about the world for the rest of our existence. If our species survives all of the shit we're doing to this planet and we right. survive another, you know, couple thousand years, we will continue to have mysteries and questions and interesting debates and nothing is definitive, nothing is concrete, yes, no. And that's the beauty and the frust frustration of science. Because I know, again, going back to like OCD-ish stuff and anxiety, mm. like you want the concrete, you want the certainty, you want the proof. But I feel like part of being a good scientist is knowing that there is no such thing as 100% concrete proof. Mm -hmm. um, so that to start off with, but just because we don't have research on something right now doesn't mean that it doesn't work. And that also doesn't mean that it won't be researched down the road. Like, I'm just going to throw out a random thing. Just because we don't have research stating that lactobacillus plantarum is beneficial for fungal toenails. That doesn't mean it's not, right. right? Like if you have had an experience where you took that probiotic and then miraculously your fungal toenails cleared up, you might have just discovered something that nobody else have, has thought about or nobody else has thought to research. That doesn't make your experience invalid and it doesn't even make the hypothesis invalid. It's just maybe we're at a point in human research where we have yet to not only ask that question, but have like a scientist ask the question, mm. and then yeah. receive funding. Do you guys know how hard it is to get funding for research? Oh, my God, it is bonkers. My husband was in research for a little bit in grad school, my husband or my mom is in research administration for like her career. It's wild, the hoops you have to jump through and like who gets funded and who does not. So even if a scientist has thought to ask the question, whether or not they receive funding is a whole different matter. And then that dictates whether the research gets done. Then once the research is done, they have to get published. And that's a whole other thing because there's a lot of research that's conducted and it just never makes it into the big journals for various reasons, probably some of which are political. I know, yeah. um, do, you, do you know uh, Kelly Brogan? The oh, yeah. Psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like the functional psychiatrist. I remember when she wrote her book, and she was making a big splash on all the podcasts, and she was interviewed by like Marie Forleo and all these people online. I remember one of her talking points that she brought up over and over again in these interviews was that, you know, when she was trained as a psychiatrist, as an MD, she just was told that SSRIs 
work the certain way and they're X amount effective. And she just, and you know, they show you the research showing that SSRIs are effective. And she just, you know, went with that. But when she actually researched it, she found that there was an equal number of research papers showing that SSRIs are no more effective than placebo. But mm. very, very few of those research articles actually got published. Yeah. Versus, I think it was 100% or nearly 100% of the articles showing a benefit of SSRIs over placebo. Like all of those got published. Right, right. And I wonder why. <laughs> Well, and this is something I didn't realize until, I don't know, like maybe five or 10 years ago. I remember Alex Vasquez, who's a big functional medicine guy, he spoke on this. And he pointed out, he's like, you don't realize how much like politics, if you want to call it that, and money Mm -hmm. is involved with research. So he was saying, for example, if you want to get your article published, say in JAMA, not picking on JAMA, I'm just going to pick an art, like a big name. If you want to get your thing published in JAMA, but you're showing that PPIs are dangerous or PPIs are ineffective, the likelihood of getting published is very low because what happens is JAMA and these these um, these research uh, what do you call them? not papers journals the journals make a, the most money off of pharmaceutical companies mm-hmm. buying up a ton of their journals. And then distributing them to doctors. So as an example, if Amy here conducted a study saying that rifaximin is the cure for literally all of human ailments, and it's the best thing on planet Earth, I mean, that seems up your alley, right? Obviously. Oh, yeah, totally. If you conducted that research, the the people who make rifaximin would then go to the journal and say, hey, can we please purchase 500,000 copies of JAMA? Because we really want everybody to know about this. And we're going to then send all of those copies. We're going to have our sales rep army go out to all of their doctor's offices and give them a copy of JAMA with that article, you know, dog-eared or or bookmarked so that we could draw attention to that article saying, our drug is the best thing in the universe. That's where the journals make the majority of their money. And so they know that they're going to get more opportunities like that if the research is favorable for pharmaceuticals. <laughs> so it just, it is what it is. But um, this is turning into very Bummerville conspiracy <laughs> theory stuff. I, I want to keep it more practical than this, but I guess I just want to say, just because research has yet to come into existence or is not yet published, that doesn't mean that a hypothesis is invalid, because realistically, some things just will never make it to publication based on the current system we have. And that's just, this is what we're dealing with. Yeah. <clears throat> and and it's, I like that we're, that we're acknowledging this too, because, you know, it, it is helpful to go down to see what the conflict of interests are within a specific piece of research um, and, and understand who is delivering you. The, the, the research article could make a big difference in, in terms of what the research is showing. Yep. So just acknowledging that that's there and that doesn't mean all research is biased and all research is, is political, but you do need to pay attention to that when you're analyzing the quality of the evidence within the article or the research. Um, So, 
it's just something it's, to keep in mind. It doesn't mean like, oh my God, there's so much, uh, you know, flawed science everywhere. It's more just keep keep a little bit of a, a what do you call it? A bull shark radar up. Yeah, or, I call it, or, yeah bull shirt. Like the good oh, place. Yeah, the good place. But yeah, just keep a little bit of some uh, hesitancy. Um, Take it with a grain of salt is right. another way to say this. Right. Like, so I'll give you a really concrete example from the SIBO area. Um, Dr. Pimentel, who's great and very smart, and he's done so much for the SIBO community, and I'm not like intrinsically knocking the guy. So don't come after me. Um, he works for the company, or he gets some funding from the company that makes Rifaximin. So it's really not surprising that a lot of his messaging is Rifaximin this, Rifaximin this, Rifaximin this, and his research tends to be heavily focused on Rifaximin. And this is maybe getting slightly more tinfoil hatty. Also, he's one of the main advocates for the use of lactulose SIBO breath testing, which now we know horrendously overdiagnoses the condition, mm. like 88% false positive rate. That's 88% more people that you could give Rifaximin to, Amy. That's good money right there. And he's also one of the main driving forces that's pushing the research towards lowering the cutoff for aspirate testing. So instead of you know, 10 to the fifth, which is where it was at for a really long time, he's one of the main driving forces trying to lower that cutoff to 10 to the third. Mm. That's a lot more people that you can give Rifaximin to. And I'm not saying that this is even intentional or conscious on his part. I'm just saying it's all pattern recognition, right? Like you see a guy who receives a lot of backing from the or employment from the company that makes the drug and then you see a lot of his work fueling the prescribing of that drug and creating opportunity to prescribe that drug more. And it all kind of makes sense. Um, so there's stuff like that. Even, you know, you look at the North American consensus on breath testing. The vast majority of the people, I forget how many off the top of my head now, but the the vast majority of those people are funded or tied with the company that makes Rifaximin or the some of the companies that do breath testing like Commonwealth Labs. But here's the here's the the messy part. Is that intrinsically a bad thing? Right? Because like the whole point of doing the American consensus on breath testing is to have the the country's leading experts in mm. in the area of breath testing. Like you want the leading experts in this arena to be making the decisions and coming to a consensus. The American consensus on breath testing wouldn't mean anything if you just found seven random dudes from your local 7-Eleven and asked <laughs> them what they thought about breath testing, right? Like you want the experts. And of course, it's going to be the experts who are doing a lot of the research and are receiving funding from pharmaceutical companies and who also happen to work for the pharmaceutical companies or lab companies. So I, I think it's a little bit of both. Like on the one hand, there's definitely the potential for a conflict of interest and you really have to take it with a grain of salt. But on the other hand, it's like, well, we wouldn't, do we want other people sitting in on this consensus and coming to the consensus anyway? Like maybe they are the best people for the job and we just have to deal with the fact that they're going to be a bit biased. I don't know. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I, I mean, I, 
I agree. You just have to, and I think sometimes the quality of the study too, just if you read enough research, you can glean a bit about the quality of the research too. Um, and you can start to see, you know, where could have some errors lied and things like that. But yeah, it, it's so important to be aware of the conflicts of interest and take that, take whatever research is being done by someone with a conflict of interest, <clears throat> maybe again with a grain of salt, you could still maybe glean some information from it and test out the hypothesis hypothesis within yourself if it's like low risk or something. Again, you always have to just assess different things. Um, one other thing I do want to talk about before we jump into the research too is um, it, it goes back to this idea that you know, there's so many questions that we haven't really totally sussed out in the research, and we probably never will suss out all the questions we have. Um, science is not finished. It goes along with that idea. But as a provider, there are situations, too, where we can glean, you know, I have a lot of people responding really well to this thing. And we might be able to theoretically say, well, it's probably helping with this. Well, and we know how this works, we can basically use our understanding of biological systems and that kind of thing to help guide the work that we do with our clients. And that is still super valuable. So you'll have some people coming at the other extreme saying, I want all evidence-based things. And, you know, evidence-based supported by research might be different than evidence-based supported by you know, theory and kind of how the understanding how digestion and the body works and um, understanding, uh, you know, what might work specifically for you or what has worked in the past. I mean, I think that there's still a lot of value in anecdotal evidence as well. Um, so also, if someone, a provider says, you know, I don't, there's not tons to support this, but I see this helping a lot. Don't necessarily disregard that because that could still be something that's very effective for someone with your specific um, cluster of issues, but just is not yet supported by research. So again, I don't necessarily think that anecdotal evidence is necessarily weaker or inherently weaker than uh, you know, literature-based evidence. Um, it's just, just different. Yeah, it's just different. That's a good way to put it. But I did want to throw that out there because, again, sometimes I'll have clients that are very much, do you have research articles on this particular thing? I'm like, no, but I just see this helping for constipation or whatever it is. Same thing yeah. with, again, the the lady that I was describing where it's like guitar helps her more than anything. And... You know, in theory, guitar brings her joy, which could affect her vagus. Like you could, you could construct a hypothesis of why that's helping, and um, get more evidence through working with more people that you know things that bring people joy are probably going to help with their digestion. But again, there's so many different things you could study just with that question. <laughs> that you're never going to have exactly <clears throat> the situation probably where you're going to have a randomized controlled trial trial of people playing the guitar and measuring There's a how sham it's affecting guitar, right. a real guitar. Yeah. Right. 
Well, and that actually accidentally made me stumble on an, another point I wanted to point out. Um, so remember, Amy, when we were in school, um, I think most healthcare professions have to have at least a little one unit class on appraising research and using research. Mm-hmm. And they always show us the same pyramid, right? Where it's like up at the tippity tippity top, the pinnacle of research and evidence, the tippy top where we don't have a lot of them, but they're the highest quality. That would be the systematic review and meta-analysis. Like you're taking many different papers and many different research facilities and groups of people, and you're taking data from a lot of people, and then you're coming to a hypothesis based off of all of that conglomerated research. So that's up at the tippy top. Then, you know, somewhere down below that, you would have like a placebo controlled trial where you test the thing and you you test the placebo and you see, does it does it actually outperform the placebo mm. in this case? Like, you know, placebo SSRIs, placebo whatever. Then below that would be human clinical research that doesn't have a placebo control, right? So like we gave a group of 30 people with IBS gas and we watched to see what would happen, but there was no placebo. And then below that we might have like animal studies and so on and so forth. But um, it's not even to say, I mean, what they teach us in school and they'll say on the internet is that the stuff at the tip top is the best of the best of the best. And that's what you should hold with the most regard. But I don't know if I fully agree with that. And one really good example of why is, like I said, the number two would probably be a double-blind placebo-controlled trial. Well, there are just some things that are really, really hard to study with a placebo because you know if you're eating broccoli or fake broccoli, right? There's no placebo broccoli. I mean... So, nutrition. Yeah, nutrition is a whole can of worms because, I mean, it's interesting... Even something like saturated fat, and again, for some people, this is so nuanced, for some people, again, having a high saturated fat diet is probably not great, but when you're looking at people who eat more saturated fat, and this was maybe like back when fat was really promoted as being bad, so like in the landscape, people that are eating a bunch of of higher fat foods probably are going to be less interested in their health. So they probably are going to be not moving as much. And again, this is stereotyping to some degree. Um, In generalizing selection bias, right, right. So you're you're having people and and these are more in like correlation based studies that you'll see are like correlation based things where they say, Oh, man, the people that ate a lot higher saturated fat, had way more heart disease or way more these diseases, but there's so many confounding var- confounding variables. Um, like again, just the landscape of the culture they live in that are really affecting the actual correlation that's happening. So it, it's it nutrition in general is just it's a super hard area to study. Um, and again, like it is interesting, just if, again, what whatever you think of Weston A. Price, but that whole group where they just went and looked at different cultures and what they ate and 
again, what they sort of found from anecdotal, just like observing type evidence is that people ate a bunch of different stuff. And most of the time they didn't have disease. If they were eating primarily whole foods, they could be eating wildly different percentage macros and wildly different yeah, things like, like the whale Inuit blubber versus right. practically vegan versus practically right. carnivore. Right. But they were all like fairly free of disease. So it's cra- it, again, it's crazy. There's so many, so many factors that you can't really assess. Yeah. Um, well, and, and again, I think just yeah, acknowledging you can't blind the limitations things either. Right. Yeah. Well, similarly, I'll throw out another one. Um, chiropractic. It's really hard. I mean, they try. There are there is such a thing as sham chiropractic studies, but it's really hard to do a sham version of chiropractic or like a placebo version of chiropractic. Because so what are you going to do? Like the chiropractor, like if I as a chiropractor palpate your neck and I assess that C5 is out of place. Do I then make the conscious decision to adjust C7 instead of C5? Right. Right? Like, am I going to intentionally move a bone out of place and leave the other one alone just for the sake of a sham? Like, that just seems intrinsically not good. Like, that's that's potentially harming the person. So there, just realistically, there are some modalities and some treatments like nutrition that are just really, really hard to study in a placebo-based controlled trial kind of situation. But again, it's if we if we view research from the model of how a lot of us are taught in school, here's the pyramid, the best stuff is at the top, the good stuff is in the middle, the like, uh, nobody really cares about it, stuff is down at the bottom, and we need to focus most of our effort on the stuff at the tip top we're potentially leaving out a lot of good quality evidence. And Mm. I think you're right. Clinical evidence is still evidence. And honestly, I think that it might even be more important Mm. because that it, it kind of gives you some space for not only the science, but the art of helping people. Yeah. It, it is really funny that you're talking about this. Um, Cause there's some dietitians that I actually really like, on social media, but I do disagree, and I don't want to name names, but I disagree sometimes with some of their posts where I, I specifically remember one dietitian posting a bunch of different things that could potentially help the gut, and they're saying which ones are evidence-based and which ones aren't. So so they're eliminating these things that I'm like, well, that could... I've, I've seen that be really effective for a lot of people. Are you just eliminating that as an option because there's no... Yeah concrete evidence again i i I do think that there's a limitation for how to use research and some people are very dogmatic about they won't use certain things unless it is supported by a lot of evidence um and and i will say some people might their hands might be tied if they do work for a practice or something and they need yeah or a hospital right they require a degree of you know, proof from an evidence-based source. Um, but that's a good yeah. point. Uh, sorry to interrupt, but that's a really good point. So I have a friend who's a psychiatrist and he's very integratively minded, but he practices in like a community health clinic. It's a, a very, you know, 
allopathic, conventional kind of model of psychiatry. And he's told me before that their their clinic or their system or whatever, if he wants to recommend an herb or a supplement, he has to include the link to the PubMed research article in the notes. And it has to be a human-based trial. It can't be like an animal study or a Petri dish study. It has to be a good quality, like medium to large scale study where they looked at that intervention in human beings for that exact purpose. So if he wants, I'm going to make something up. If he wanted to recommend ashwagandha to a patient with schizophrenia, he would literally have to provide a link to an article showing that ashwagandha helped people with schizophrenia. So that that's such a good point that I wasn't going to stumble on, but I, I'm glad you mentioned it. Like the people who work for clinic systems or hospital systems or universities or teaching hospitals, like that's going to be potentially a group of people who come off as not as open-minded because their hands are quite literally tied. Um, and yeah. again, some people just are dogmatic and they kind of get their head up their butt about this stuff too. So there's well, also room for that conversation. Well, and I, <clears throat> what what's, this is also just something to think about too, where you have some people that are very behind the research. And that is, I think they say it takes about 17 years for research to get into textbooks. I mean, hopefully it's speeding up now. I, I'd hope so. We just pray. with, with technology and, you know, the internet and things like that. But yeah, I mean, sometimes too, people just aren't as, hip to the research as well, or, you know, they're waiting around till something has more evidence from a research standpoint. Or, or they have a reason to not acknowledge something. Like, again, I'm going to, I'm going to throw this poor guy under the bus. I don't want this to turn into the anti p mental episode here. But uh, one that drives me absolutely bonkers with him is that he continually goes on webinars and, and does interviews where he he keeps perpetuating this model of, well, you already have too much bacteria, so therefore you can't take probiotics because the probiotics just add more bacteria, and that's going to make SIBO worse. There is zero evidence, zero good quality evidence that that happens. We could talk about the D-lactic acidosis study from like 2016 or so another day. There were some holes in that research, in my opinion, but... That has virtually never been proven. And there are so many studies showing that probiotic supplementation helps increase eradication rates with SIBO compared to placebo to a point where there was, I think it was either 2019 or 2020, there was a meta-analysis on the use of probiotics for SIBO specifically. And still to this day, as of, you know, I listened to a webinar of his a couple months ago, Still to this day, Dr. Pimentel says probiotics do not help SIBO. They'll make SIBO worse. You can't take probiotics. Are you out of your damn mind? My word's not his. Oh my God, it's going to add bacteria on top of bacteria and make SIBO worse. And that is literally the complete opposite of what the research says. Mm. And, and again, like, we don't know the guy. And I'm not going to pretend I do. But, you know, on the one hand, maybe he doesn't know about that evidence. I personally find that hard to believe based on his accolades and how big he is in the SIBO community. Or again, like tinfoil hat going on again, 
is it because his interests lie in prescribing rifaximin and not necessarily in the use of very cheap, hardly funded probiotic supplements? Right. I don't know. I mean, I'm going to get so much crap in the comments of this episode. <laughs> I can see it now. That might be so terrible. But honestly, like, again, it's pattern recognition, people. You see you see one thing that makes you suspicious, and you're like, oh, okay. And then you see another thing, and you're like, hmm. And then you see a third thing, and you're like, hmm. <laughs> and after a while, you'd be a fool not to pick up on this stuff. But let's uh, let's get off of poor Dr. P. Mental, as that lady once called him in a seminar years back. Um, I wanted to share – I'm going to put a bee in our bonnet for a moment – can I just say that systematic reviews and meta-analyses are not always all they're cracked up to be? <laughs> you can you can let it rip. I'm here for it. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, Amy gives me permission, people, so we're going to go there. So this is a really great example of this. I stumbled on this paper when I was working on SIBO Hero, my healthcare practitioner course. And I was, frankly, I was kind of excited to come across this study. I thought, ooh, what a juicy sounding thing. I can't wait to include this in in my course. And it is titled Methane Positive SIBO in Inflammatory Bowel Disease and Irritable Bowel Syndrome, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. This is from May of 2021. So it's still relatively fresh. And I was like, ooh, boy. And I remember one of their takeaways was that methane SIBO, or let's just call it emo and be done with that. They said that emo is far, actually, no, Hold on. I'm going to rewind. I'm still going to call it methane SIBO because that's what they said in the article. Mm. And this does change things. They said methane SIBO was far more prominent in ulcerative colitis patients than Crohn's disease patients. And I believe if I remember correctly, they said that methane SIBO was more prominent in IBD than even in IBS. And I kind of like sat back and read that. And I was like, huh? That doesn't make any sense to me. Because if you know a damn thing about IBD, particularly ulcerative colitis, it's that those people virtually always have diarrhea, usually mucousy, bloody diarrhea. And methane production usually makes you constipated. So I'm looking at this and I'm like, this, these, these two things don't make sense together. Why? Why is this the exact opposite of what I expected to find? So what I did, I checked their sources. I went and I looked at the, there were two articles that they referenced when they they had that number about ulcerative colitis specifically. And I went and I looked at, at them. I forget what one of them was, but the main paper that they cited, are you ready for this? I probably ranted about this to you at yeah, the time. Yeah, I feel but, like I remember, I remember but this, I, but yeah. I, I'm going to tell the people anyway. Uh, this is for their benefit, not yours at this point, Amy. There, the article that they referenced when they said you see people have a whole ton of methane SIBO was a paper from 1987 titled Factors Affecting Methane Production in Humans, Gastrointestinal Diseases and Alterations of Colonic Flora. And you know what they did? They were just looking at a single breath sample. And the only thing they were looking at, they were saying, all right, do you produce methane? Yes or no? That's the whole study. And they did find that a fair amount of people with UC 
produced methane. I think it says right here, uh, 31.4% of UC patients produced some methane in the study. But that's different than SIBO, right? right? A single methane breath sample, that could have been coming from the colon, it could have been coming from the small bowel, it could have been coming from the mouth, like from Jason Harberlach's right. research. Lord knows where that was coming from. But this article made no claims about SIBO. They didn't even mention the term SIBO at all in this 1987 paper. They didn't mention it once because they weren't looking for SIBO. They were doing a single breath sample for methane. And it was a binary yes, no thing. The meta-analysis authors then took that and ran with it and said, ooh, 31.4% of UC patients have methane SIBO, when that was absolutely not the case. So here we have a good example of a systematic review and meta-analysis. Supposedly, the pinnacle of research, the tippity top of that pyramid, the, the creme de la creme, and they came to absolutely the wrong conclusion. And mm -hmm. if you just read that meta-analysis or if you just read the abstract or the conclusions of the paper, you would be grossly, grossly misled. Mm. Yeah, so I got, it's, it's, it's so interesting. Um, frustrating is the word I would have chosen, yeah. Amy. Frustrating. Well, and, and again, it might be helpful to, so <clears throat> again, especially with a meta-analysis like you, you are talking about, understanding a little bit about the sources of the evidence, where it's coming from, again, is important. But I almost feel it might be important helpful to just describe what a typical article looks like and what is in each section of a typical article. Um, we, could, we could go there. Do um, you think that that would help and just things to look out for in different sections? Yeah, potentially. Can I can I make one more point off of this initial point, though? Because the next yeah. thing I wanted to share is related. Yeah, I, for sure. I, I want one of the takeaways from this episode if there's any, I don't want people just walking away like, oh, research is all hogwash and I'm doomed and I can't go on PubMed anymore. Um, I, I think rather one of the biggest things I want to point out is check sources as much as you can. And even even if it's just to like take a quick look Lou and see if anything looks fishy, just a quick gander. If something feels fishy to you or really, really, really surprising to you, uh, just check it out. It, it doesn't have to be a whole big thing. You don't have to necessarily read every single article in depth. Um, but like I, I very quickly ascertained from this article that they were not talking about SIBO at all, that they were talking about a single sample of methane. So mm. I could have deduced that pretty quickly from looking at this old article. But another great example, this also sprawls out into the general internet and like blogs and YouTube videos and, and stuff of that nature. So another good example, when I was working on Banish the Burn, which is a like a medium sized course about GERD and gastritis that is part of the FODMAP Freedom suite of stuff. Um, I was researching, you know, supplements and diets and any sort of new research on GERD and gastritis. And I went to one resource that I think is usually pretty decent. Um, it's selfhacked.com. I don't know if you're familiar with that. But they're you, like, I'll, I'll generally check like them, maybe examine, 
Lucy Mailing, Chris Masterjohn, there's a handful of resources that I'll kind of check out to see, ah, has this person talked about this before? And maybe they could save me a little bit of the work. Um, or, you know, I could follow their references and learn about stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there's this article on self-hacked website called gastritis parentheses chronic atrophic or acute and parentheses colon treatment and diet and overall it's pretty darn good i'm not going to knock it intrinsically but here's an interesting one under dietary interventions they have a section for the mediterranean diet and they say the mediterranean diet has shown some promise in reducing gastric acid production in a study of 130 patients with gastritis 38 of which were diagnosed with reflux gastritis eating a mediterranean diet led to a decrease in stomach ph an increase in stomach acidity and a decrease in gastric symptoms and heartburn in the same study the mediterranean diet with the addition of acidic foods actually improved outcomes the author suggested that a more acidic diet could suppress the production and release of stomach acid thereby indirectly protecting the stomach lining now here's the wild thing i clicked on the reference for that and it's a article on pubmed 2018 titled new food approaches to reduce and or eliminate increase gastric acidity related to gastroesophageal pathologies. If you want to check it out, the PubMed ID is 297-29504. You want to know what they concluded, Amy? None of that. Not even a little bit. I don't know what drugs this person was on when they wrote that blog on the self-hacked website, which again, usually I'm a fan. Usually I'm a fan. But... I read it a couple years ago now, but I'll I'll paraphrase. Uh, what they did, they took these people with um, with GERD, and they had them do the Mediterranean diet, and that was kind of like the baseline washout diet that they chose for the study. So the people did two weeks of the Mediterranean diet, no changes in symptoms, none, none, none. <laughs> then I just it it. Boggles Go off. Mind. Go off, Oh, my girl. God. It boggles my mind. So two weeks of the Mediterranean diet, not a single iota change in their symptoms. Then they did the Mediterranean diet with the intentional addition of lemon juice and tomatoes to acidic foods. Their symptoms got worse. They got worse, which is no surprise to anybody who's ever had reflux. Like, the acidic right. foods generally make you feel worse. Then... They went back to the washout diet, which was the Mediterranean diet, and they did indeed feel better, but they only felt better to a point that they returned to baseline. There was no change from baseline when they went back to the washout diet, which was the Mediterranean diet. So like, you could be tempted to view that as, oh, switching from that diet to the Mediterranean diet and they felt better, but it's like, no, you just, you took your foot off the gas. And let the car coast back to its normal speed. Like it, you're not healing anything. Then the wild, the cool thing about the study, then they did a modified Mediterranean diet where they had people reduce or eliminate foods that were high in glycid. I think that's how it's pronounced glycid. That's when they felt notably better. Like most people profoundly better. Then they went back to Mediterranean and they returned to baseline, a.k.a. they felt worse. Then, you ready for the wild thing? This was like the, the boom, the mic drop. Then, one final hurrah, they had the people do Mediterranean with the addition of the acidic foods, 
but without the foods high in glycid, they still felt better. Whoa. Oh, it was so cool. So their conclusion was that it was this glycid stuff that matters, not the acid necessarily, like it triggers right. symptoms a little bit, but it's not a root cause. And the Mediterranean diet was just used as the baseline, like the base diet for all of their other interventions. But again, this resource that is usually pretty darn good. And that particular article, I'll just throw out here. Let's do a little call to authority. Um, okay, yeah, this Jasmine Foster person has a BS in biology at least, and medically reviewed by this guy who has a MD degree. Like, again, conclusions and statements drawn from an article that in no way, shape, or form drew those conclusions or showed that in the research. Right. So, again, just... Well, yeah, that's like the the headlines that are like um, so wild, you know, out, out there. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. I can't think of one off the top of my head. But it's all like the sensational articles I can think of one. yeah think of one think of a one. glass of red of wine a night is just as good as going right. to the gym new research shows <laughs> right. no it's not <laughs> don't <laughs> fool yourself my mom who i love dearly but it could be a silly goose sometimes my mom was sipping on her red wine and saying oh the, the news told me this is just as good as going to the gym and i was like ma no please it's not <laughs> i assure you it's not um i think it keeps us in a state of uh bliss um feeling like we're basically pumping iron when we're sipping on a glass of wine. You could have the wine for other reasons. That's the right, thing. Exactly. Like, I, you I can agree. enjoy your wine. I'm not going to be the meanie pie who takes away your wine. I'm just saying, don't fool yourself into thinking that you're shredding it at the gym when you in no way are doing that. Right. Oh, but you're right. I think the things that get attention, especially from news outlets and magazines and and get publicized heavily are the really sensational, like shock factor things. Remember, I mentioned briefly, remember that um, D-lactic acidosis yogurt study mm -hmm. and how crazy oh, yeah. that was in the SIBO space. Like, Oof. oh man, every like day in the out SIBO of the sales of anyone that ever wanted to take a probiotic. <laughs> oh my God, everybody lost their damn minds and was sharing it left and right. And I think I was the only person at the time who read the actual research study and was like, ah, like there was some really neat, like on the one hand, it was well designed up until a certain point. But one of the big beefs I had was they never retested the people for SIBO. Yeah. So I, uh, anyway, anyway, again, we could do a whole episode on D-lactic acidosis at some point. It's probably overdue, honestly, but mm. um you know, that was a good example of an article and it had a really sexy title. Do you remember? It was like delactic acidosis caused by yogurt causes brain fog in people with SIBO or right. they specifically put yogurt and brain fog in the title right. of the research article. And I think that was very intentional, but everybody shared that. And it was just like wildfire for the longest oh, time. Yeah. And it still it pops up crazy. sometimes. It was crazy. But again, like, just being able to look at research and really appraise it and determine, is this something I want to put a lot of weight in? Or is it something that I'm just going to go hmm, neat and pass on? That is a skill that um, a lot of the internet could improve on, 
I think. Yeah. And I, I mean, <clears throat> in terms too on the degree of which you should research is also just an important question as well, because, you know, sometimes I see my clients over researching um, and maybe even just opening it up as a conversation with whoever your provider is. I mean, I'm probably a regular GI doc is not going to want to talk about research with you, but if you're working with a provider that you can spend a little bit more time with, um, you know, if you have some articles that you're, you're reviewing or whatever, and you want their take on it, or you want to discuss it a little bit more and how, to what degree it, it is helpful for your case. I do think using research in that way is more helpful than just going totally off the rails and researching a million things all at once. Um, <clears throat> you know, having some, some articles that you're exploring with a provider uh, if you're not as accustomed to research might be helpful to where you can go back and forth and discuss what might be relevant to your case or not, or the quality of the evidence or that kind of thing. Yeah, like somebody who's maybe a little bit more skilled at this than you are. Quite honestly, yeah. too, you you bring up a good point here. And we could have led the episode off with this, but that ah, the heck, we're 49 minutes in, we're going to talk about it now. The question of whether or not you as an individual should be on PubMed and researching all of this is such a good thing to ponder. And I don't think there's a clear yes or no out there, but uh, I do find that there are a lot of people I've worked with who are very well educated in the sense that they spend so much time reading articles and journals mm. and blogs and listening to podcasts like ours and YouTube videos like mine and listening to webinars with Dr. Pimentel and Seebecker. And, and it's like they could almost get a medical degree at this point with all their knowledge. And we've talked about this so many times, right? You're taking away from your real life assuming that you don't do this for a living and your goal in life is not to work with SIBO patients, your all of that time and effort and energy that you're putting into reading all this and researching the heck out of it, you're, you're robbing other areas of your life of those same hours, right? So you could spend an hour on PubMed or an hour at the pool with your kids. You could spend an hour on, mm. you know, listening to Dr. Pimentel's new SIBO webinar, or you could spend that hour laying out in your backyard and getting some sunshine and getting a little bit of a tan. Mm. Which are you going to choose? So that's a real conversation. Honestly, a lot of the time, uh, I when I kind of sense that about people when they first start working with me, like they're the person who's down the PubMed rabbit hole all the time, I will often tell them, why don't you give that to me? Like, right. let me take that burden from you. And I'm just, I'm going to like put it in my pocket right over here. And I'm going to carry that for you while we're working together. You don't need to be stressed out with hours and hours on PubMed. And it's right. not to say, just believe me because I'm right about a hundred percent of everything, but it's right. like, let's, let's see what happens when we take that, that stressor off your plate and give you some of your life back and some of your energy and time back. And I guess in some way I am asking people to put faith in me to some degree and like faith in the fact that I'm up to date on the research and I'm keeping up with it enough right. that they no longer have to. Right. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I, I, 
Yeah. It's a big problem, I think. And I find, too, that a lot of my researchers, and in some ways I relate to them a lot because I was an over-researcher myself. And I think in general, I tend to really like, I, I have a very curious mind. So there was already probably more of an inherent interest in something like research than someone else, but I definitely went overboard and it sucked way too much time and energy than it should have. Um, But a lot of my clients that are like me and are researching probably more than they should, they're also getting way too nitty gritty a lot of times where they're so lost in finding links to, to some issue they're having and they're so focused on finding like weird nitty gritty answers that they're missing huge components of their case. Um, <clears throat> like maybe they're, they've lost 25 pounds or something and uh, they're still researching a ton and like, what, what I need to do this. And it's like, you just need to focus on your diet. Like it's not even time away from kids or things like that. They're fo- they could be spending more of that time and energy on doing some of the things that could get them results versus just researching about it and trying to to trying to lay out this perfect plan and connect all the dots instead of just doing the things and seeing what works and then adjusting. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely feel too that if you take the research too far, like you said, it pulls you out of living. It also pulls you out of actually doing the things that might help you improve. Um, and you just miss the forest through the trees some of the time. Um, I think I have a good way of describing this actually. I've just got a, yeah, here we go. I found the visual we need. So the people on YouTube will once again get the real experience. All of you audio-only people are going to miss out on this. Um, it makes me think of this meme. Oh, my God. Right? I, it's right. probably blurry. But it's the picture from it's always, sunny, it's always Sunny in Philadelphia where Charlie looks like a crazy person. And he's got all of these papers and, like, strings up on a board. And he's like, oh. You know, like just try to convince somebody of something. I forget the plot line from the actual episode, but I feel like oftentimes researching for people turns into that where it's like they have 800 PubMed articles saved and they've listened to 900 webinars and 57 podcast episodes and they're like, frantically trying to connect the dots and make sense of it. And they're looking at these obscure detailed pathways right. like they're they're thinking about like methylation and mthfr right but meanwhile they're just not eating enough or right. their sleep is shit right or you know they have some toxic relationship that's making them 10 out of 10 stressed every waking moment of every waking day and it's like those are the things that would actually change your physiology the hell with mthfr right. and you know all of the biochemical pathways that you think are so important like you need to get out of that and just go go back again it's go back to the unsexy basics it's what we keep saying in every single episode you need to go back to the things that don't seem glamorous and i swear to god they work you just have yeah. to believe us at this point 
hundred yeah, no, like, thirty some odd I episodes in. One hundred percent agree. Yeah, it's 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 and and maybe even having if you are someone that's pretty wrapped up in the research, having some sort of boundaries set up for yourself. So maybe you can listen to like one podcast or a couple podcasts a week. Hours, obviously. Um, right. Just ours. <laughs> just ours. Just ours. Just ours. Um, so just listen to our podcast and then, nothing you know, <laughs> yeah, nothing else. <laughs> we sound like such jerks. <laughs> I know. Just kidding. Um, but like, you know, maybe you can do like an hour of independent research and listen to an hour podcast each week or something like that. Like you could maybe put some, some parameters around it versus just wild goose chasing it. I, I feel like I remember, you know, a lot of my free time when I worked and was struggling with well, I work now, but when I worked as an analyst, if I had free time, um, I'd be, oh my God, I just need to listen to one more podcast versus why don't I just go talk to a coworker and like have some fun and, um, like have a, a fireside chat at the, the water, the water filler upper thing, you know, that would be cooler. Amy, are you that far removed from office life? The water cooler. Um, so I mean, I I like what you said. Every time you are researching, it could be pulling you away from something else that might be more beneficial. Yeah. For your health. Well, and I'm going to point out a link here and I know that you're aware of this, but again, it's for everybody else's benefit at this point. Um, You could kind of treat it like OCD in a way, right? Like if, if your obsession and compulsion is to research the snot out of everything and you need that certainty and you need to know and you need the research and you're just looking for that one holy grail and oh my god you're gonna feel better tomorrow oh my god if that's a flavor of ocd for you then doing doing what we just described is kind of like treating the ocd right because it's a um i shoot what is it called again it's not a challenge test oh an exposure there you go. Thank you. Mm-hmm. It's an exposure. So it's going to feel uncomfortable when you tell yourself, hey, you're not allowed to, I'm going to slap slap on the wrist, right? Like you're not allowed to go on PubMed right now. You've already done your hour for the week. That's going to feel uncomfortable. And you're going to feel like, but I need to research more. I don't know the things yet but that's okay. You will get more comfortable with that. The more you practice it, you're doing exposure therapy for a very OCD-ish thing. Yeah, it's almost like, a good, it's almost a good litmus test to um, <clears throat> the degree of which you're uncomfortable taking a bit of a break or reducing the amount of research that you're doing is probably a good litmus, te- litmus test as to if you have a disordered sort of relationship to yeah. the amount of research that you do. Yeah. So no, if, if hearing this right now, you're like, okay, I'll just stop today. That's fine. Good idea, guys. You probably don't have a lot of OCD ish stuff. Uh, but if you're, if you're feeling kind of panicky at the thought of not researching as much, then that is, I agree. I think that's kind of a indicator that you've got some OCD ish stuff going on with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I had one more thing I wanted to share. I know this is kind of discombobulated at this rate, but Wait, I want to be... Can I say be... one more thing about the OCD thing? I swear oh, to sure. God. Yeah. I get more comments about our OCD episode 
I don't know if you have before, and maybe it's because I was the one with the OCD, but I swear to God, I've had probably seven or eight clients be like, whoa, I listened to that episode and it's definitely me. Um, I just, I got off a, a, a call today with a client who was doing Jenna's master classes and really, really enjoying them. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's a really good episode. If you haven't listened to any of the OCD, I think they're episode one, 104 and 105. That sounds correct. I um, intentionally named it uh, sneakily <laughs> yeah. to trick people into watching it. It's titled something like, you might have this and not know it. <laughs> totally try to bait you into that one. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's really common with the people we work with. Um, it's well, it's very again, pervasive. It's like, to me, there's whether you labeled whether it's like OCD or anxiety, it's all on some sort of spectrum and there can be disorder, whether it's label, whether you kind of consider it more anxiety or OCD, if you're still just experiencing that urgency and that discomfort, if you're not doing something, whether you call it a coping skill or a compulsion, it's still the same. Yeah. Potato that's going on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's a valid point, but I think Um, a lot of our, our, our clientele um, seem to seem to identify more as an anxious than like having OCD. Well, they probably have heard the term anxiety and right. been diagnosed with it so much more. Right. And then, you know, it, frankly, before your struggle with OCD, I always just pictured OCD as the person who washes their hands a billion times. Right. I never really realized that the behaviors I was seeing in patients and students was actually OCD, not just run of the mill anxiety. Right. So that it right. was a huge eye opener for me. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you, Cece, in a way, because it was that little bugger that made y'all OCD out, <laughs> out of right. your mind and got you down this rabbit hole. So thank you, Cece. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I saw your, your Facebook post, Cece, who's 11 months old as of the filming of this. I and know. we're also filming this on my 10th wedding anniversary. So oh, today is wow. a, a celebratory. Day. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Happy anniversary. Yes. Happy, happy anniversary to Mixmaster Mike and I, who's probably listening to this right now and, and dying a little bit of embarrassment. He's not as extroverted as I am. But anyway, I had one more thing to share. And then I know you probably have to skedaddle soon. Um, I just, I wanted to put a plug in also for the methodology of the research in the sense of, um, I alluded to this with the pyramid thing, human research where they have a human ingest the thing like the probiotic or the herb. And then we're comparing that with a placebo like that's high, pretty high level stuff. Also ingesting the herb and not comparing it with the placebo. That's still very valuable research. But what gets really weird is when you get into Petri dish studies, Mm. animal models, and Sometimes you see even weirder stuff where they will like take an herbal extract and inject it into the body of the mouse or the human. Mm, And I just, I want to put a plug in. If you see a research article where they are injecting like a ginseng extract into a mouse or a human, that is very likely to have no bearing on real human physiology 
I don't know why that sort of research is even done, to be quite honest with you, because that's not how these things work. Normally, if if we're looking at a thing that's ingested, right, so like a supplement or a probiotic or an herb or a food, you it has to go through all these processes. So it, that compound gets exposed to digestive enzymes, acid, bicarbonate, mucus, bacteria, yeast, all of their metabolites. And a lot of compounds that we take medicinally don't actually do anything in the human body on their own. Rather, you ingest the molecule, let's say berberine, for example. You ingest berberine, and then your gut bacteria transforms that molecule into a different molecule. And then that's the thing that actually gets absorbed by your body, makes it into your bloodstream and does all the cool stuff. So it's a completely different world. If you take berberine and you inject it into the body, or if you take berberine and you like sprinkle it on a Petri dish, (laughs) right? Because yet like the berberine molecule normally would never make it to your cells. It's a different molecule. And the same thing goes for a lot of herbs that we use. Uh, especially things that are really high in like beta-glucans, like mushrooms and polysaccharides, like astragalus. A lot of these herbs are getting transformed by your microbiome and perhaps by your liver. So we're not really measuring the active component of it when we just put it on a Petri dish and see what happens. Yeah, this this is really important, I think. Um, I, you know who points out a really interesting study along these lines is um the hack your gut guy um how come i think can't think of his name yeah dave mayo i think dave mayo right okay dave mayo he wrote an article i wish i could find it or link to it i feel like there's no way i'm gonna be able to find it now but um he was talking about how he gets frustrated by some of the gluten studies because they're just doing that they're kind of taking gluten putting it on the cell and there's so much interaction in the body that gluten does that's going to be different than just like swirling it in a petri dish with petri dish with your cells. Um, and his big argument is that you one of the biggest thing is that you don't have the microbiome. So there's certain microbes that actually help you break down and degrade gluten. Mm-hmm. And his argument was that a lot of people that have more gluten issues um, <clears throat> might be low in that particular microbe. Um, And that is leading to, so he wasn't arguing that there isn't some people that have issues with gluten, but just that some of these studies that are saying, it's like a, you know, inherently inflammatory, look at what it does in the Petri dish. Yeah, just shoddy research. Right. So he, again, was just arguing that, which is a really interesting and important point. Yeah. uh, What what happens physiologically in the body is going to be way different that you just throwing gluten on some cells in a Petri dish. Well, honestly, uh, to kind of round it out by throwing a popular test under the bus, this is the major issue I have with MRT, like leap testing. The basic, and I'm going to totally butcher it, but we're cramped for time here at the end. Basically, they take a blood sample and they isolate some of your white blood cells. And then they expose those white blood cells to a food antigen like gluten or soy or corn. And then they pass it through a filter, which basically, if the cell puffs up and gets bigger, it won't be able to pass through the filter as readily. So they're kind of, they're, they're basically fishing for 
did the cell puff up and get bigger or did it not? And if the cell puffed up and got bigger, they they deem that as a reaction against the food. And if it if it didn't puff up and get huge and it was able to pass through the filter, then they say that you're not reactive to that food. And it's like, well, first of all, that's not necessarily how the immune system always works. Like right. you can have an immune reaction that has nothing to do with the size of the cell. You could just squirt out a bunch of cytokines and stuff, and that doesn't necessarily change the size of the cell. But also, that's not how digestion works. You normally, like gluten, you would chew it and break it down mechanically. Then it gets exposed to salivary amylase in your mouth. Then it goes down the tube and gets exposed to a ton of acid. Then it gets exposed to bicarbonate and bile and pancreatic enzymes. Then the brush border enzymes. Then the microbiome the mucus, then the part of the immune system that sees that food antigen is the dendritic cell, which they don't float around in the blood, just by the way, like they're looking at neutrophils and lymphocytes and stuff. But the dendritic cells put their little arms into the gut, and they're sampling these food antigens, and then they are relaying a complex message to the rest of the immune system, telling them if they need to react or not. So taking blood out of taking white blood cells out of your blood, putting them in a machine or a Petri dish, and then exposing them to raw food antigens that are not digested and not exposed to the microbiome is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. But lots of people like this test. I'm going to get shit for that. I know you've got to go though. So uh, at the risk of ending this one awkwardly and abruptly, what's uh, what's the cartoon? That's all, folks. Oh my God. <laughs> Put a bump.